Welcome to Founding Impact, where we talk about impact startup ecosystem in Europe. I'm Maciej Gałkiewicz. And I'm Kasia Zalewska. We are Impact Angel Investors from Ragnarsson. Hello guys, welcome back. Uh, today we have a really cool guest. Uh, with us is Achim Hensen from uh, Purpose Economy, the man behind Stuart Ownership, Stuart Ownership model. Uh, it's hard to pronounce. Uh, so <laughs> Achim, welcome. Uh, really cool to have you here. And before we deep dive into all the questions about purpose, what that is, how to understand it, how to implement it and all of that, I would like to uh, understand better you. What led you actually to, to go into the direction of impact and this, uh, this new model and uh, what's your story? Hi, thank you very much for, for inviting me and having me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that story, sort of my angle towards steward ownership or my path to it. Um, it's funny because if you had asked me 10 years ago if I would ever do something in the realm of or in the topic of, of ownership and um, investment and financing startups and companies, I would have probably looked at you and said, you're crazy, I'll not do that, I'll never do that. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not my path. Um, because my background is I'm a business psychologist. Um, and there is a reason why I, I studied business psychology. I, um, I'm really fascinated by, by what people can do uh, when they collaborate. I do think that collaboration of people, which is, by the way, pretty much what I think companies are there for, to give a framework for people to collaborate and do something great. And I do think that this, this collaboration of people is something that makes us very special as humans. So it's a deeply human thing to being able to collaborate and creating something more together. Uh, and that fascinated me always. And that's why I studied business psychology. After that, I spent quite some time in, in consulting and organizational development work. You would nowadays probably call that in the, in the field of new work and new work structures. So challenging how companies are thought of, st structured, uh, what frameworks you use, etc. And I, I till today think that like really challenging the way you how you think of collaboration and and company structures um, has a massive value, but but then I noticed that there is a, there's almost like a missing piece um, because most of the time companies in that field talk about purpose and about self determination, and then I noticed that this ownership question kept repeating um, even if you only do. Uh, organizational development, because ultimately what you do is you ask power questions, you talk about how decisions are made, what the company is there for, what motivates people, etc. And again and again, this 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 small topic of ownership kept coming up, but not in a massive way. And I I always wondered, I like I kind of read all the books about uh, and, and studies about organizational development and new structures, um, and I always wondered what is the role of ownership within that field. But I didn't pay too much attention, to be honest, because I thought that you can do so much cool stuff by just changing the structures within the company. Um, and then um, one day I, I was working as, the, as an organization developer in, in a company that was a um, platform for holiday, online platform for holiday apartments. And I was responsible for organizational development. And we did really, really cool stuff. Um, and it worked pretty well. And one day the company um, got bought. And I wasn't an owner. I was, I would say, in an, in an entrepreneurial way, very active and very, I gave a lot of my life energy into that company. And uh, one day they, uh, people came in and said, okay, we, you were part of our family now. We bought the company because the, the company worked well. And this experience being exited as part of a, a co-worker in, 
in a company felt extremely strange to me. Because let's look at what happened. What happened there was that people came in into a social organism, into a company, and put money on the table. And for putting that money on the table, they got power over that company. And for me, that's just weird. Um, because I think people should have power who are um, socially embedded in the company, who, who actually do the work, who, um, who take responsibility, uh, who have the best knowledge. Those are the people that I think should have power within companies. And this feeling of like being sold and then people having power over the system and the company that I've been working for for quite some time and spent my life energy in felt pretty emotional and not good at all to me. Without any kind of like general moral judgment here, um, it was just not a nice experience for me in in my worldview and in my perspective on what what companies I like to work in, and that was but the was it was mm -hmm. it just like um, the event in itself that um, that was weird to you, or they changed the way the organization was um, um, was doing things? Uh, well, I think for all those those exits and takeovers the kind of the tune you play is always the same stuff will stay the same no we will not change the organization uh no we will not change the way we work no it's all going to stay the same it's just some formal mm -hmm. thing it's just the ownership that changed i could feel right away um that i do think that's a whole lot of crap that that's a whole lot of bullshit to be honest because mm -hmm. I was smart enough to understand that what happened there was a power shift, that people took formal power over that company. Um, and I could understand the reason because money got transferred. Um, I, but that was just the first moment I stayed sometime in, in the company afterwards and kind of observed what happened, et cetera. Um, but the, what that triggered for me um, outside of that event and what happened in that given company, what that triggered for me is to relook at Everything I learned about what I think a comp what I learned about what a company is, how motivation works, etc., and then somehow started to combine the the principles that are so coherent in the in the kind of new workspace or in 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 in, in the impact space like purpose, drive, self determination, etc., and then looked at ownership in a very different way and wondered, hey, can you can you just can you combine that in a new way? Are there people and organizations out there in the world who? who are maybe forerunners or pioneers of new ways of thinking about ownership. And that was the, the birth moment for me personally um, back then to start Purpose, the Purpose Foundation. Um, so the, like the founding moment for me was more of a question rather than um, a finished and ready idea. And the question was, how can a, a, a healthy ownership structure and financing stru structure for companies look like? that is based on purpose drive and self-determination. I'll pause here and see where you want me to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm already super curious about like getting back to, to your story. So at the beginning you said you would never have guessed that uh, in the future you would be in this, in this position, in this space. But like from your story, it kind of sounded like, maybe not the, like natural thing to do, but you know, an iterative process going more or less into this direction. Why was it such a surprise for you? I think I was a bit naive and then I wanted to focus on a an aspect of a company that seemed important for me back then and where I seemed that I, I have the the power and the, the knowledge to change something. Because the within the organization development field it, um, at that time there was this shift of 
hey, can we rethink everything we know about how collaboration should work, et cetera, et cetera. And that was, that was basically like opening a box. If you rethink and, and adapt the, the organizational and the collaboration structures, then the first question is, what do we even think a company is? And I think that's, the, that's almost like the combining factor because I don't mm-hmm. think that a comp- the answer of, of what you think that a company is that's not a static thing. That's that's something that we can discuss. Maybe you have another perception of what a company is than I do and than other people have. But given the answer to that question, the the outcome is that you have to like, or you could argue that you want to build coherent structures to your own perception of what a company is. Mm-hmm. And for example, my my answer to my own question would be that I think that a company is mainly a group of people working for a purpose. And now... If, if that's true, then then the next question is, how can you own that? Like, how 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 can you even own a group of people? And what what can you own, etc. And I think I I just I was naive that I haven't really looked into the ownership question. Um, and then just a step by step learned how important it is. I thought ownership is this boring thing with contracts and and lawyers and and paragraphs and and uh, numbers so would, it, would it mean that um, you focused on the structure and let's say company culture and then the deeper you went the more you realized that it's also about everything else that the company consists of like the ownership exactly i noticed that looking on the organization the organizational structure is just one perspective that is important and then mm-hmm. if you don't combine that with a coherent ownership structure and a coherent financing structure then you leave potential on the table. That's what I would argue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, to make it very drastic, if you talk about being self-determined in terms of, of self-management, for example, tell your people to be responsible, make good decisions, be self-determined, and tell them we are all here for a purpose. We all work for an impact. But you have an ownership structure where the ownership is not even with with people that are active in the company, not even with the entrepreneurs anymore because the control lies outside, then it's hard for me to understand how this this will be the best version possible because it's just not really coherent. I'm not judging the one is good or the other is good, but for me, I think it's important to make it coherent. And, and that's what I learned, that that if you combine financing ownership and organizational structures in a way that is coherent and based on the same kind of idea what the company even is and why who should have power then you can just lift a hell out of a hell out of a lot uh, potential out of the the company and that's nice that's what motivates me to coming back to my own story what drives me till today is i'm just super I, i'm super like energized being part of processes where people and groups of people get into their potential and like you can always I, I think in those processes you can feel if people like really are where they belong and collaborate and come up with good ideas. This life energy, this like very human energy of collaboration is just something I'm really I like to be part of. And and I think those two framework aspects of ownership, organizational structure and financing structure, they they can contribute massively to creating systems in which this potential and the 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 likelihood of coming to the highest potential is super cool and is super is super nice. Yeah, but now you're talking about uh, f- from the perspective of having already experienced a couple of years uh, mm-hmm. building something, but I can imagine the beginnings were not that uh, bright. How hard it was to find like let's say first believers or people who wanted to join you on the mission of innovating or in um, 
actually finding out what could mm-hmm. be this new type of organization because you had an idea you you saw a problem what happened next yeah uh, first of all i looked into the the books that i uh, looked at before so uh, in my case it was typically those books uh, about alternative ways of management um You'd call that soci- sociocracy. Um, back then, the book of Re- Frederick Laloux, Reinventing Organizations, was a big mm-hmm. one. And I looked into those books and wondered if they described those very pioneering and, and um, groundbreaking ways of col- collaborating, do they say anything about ownership at all within those? And I noticed that they all do. It's not really talked about a lot, but they all do. In the, in the very first versions of the sociocracy uh, movement, they do talk about the connection to ownership and that all those ideas can only come to their full potential if they are combined with coherent ownership structures. And Frederick Laulou, for example, he in his book points out that there is a, uh, he puts it, there is a um, tricky relationship between um, his way of organizations that he described in his book and mainstream ownership structures. And he already uses the term stewardship in, in his book, for example. And the, the, the term stewardship keeps repeating in those, in those areas. So that was one starting point. And then, well, obviously back then I met my, my co-founders. Uh, one of them I met way before because one of them is my twin brother, identical twin brother. Um, so if you see someone around who looks like me and talks about the same thing, it could be him. <laughs> um, And um, my other co-founders, Alexander and uh, Armin, and we, out of various perspectives, we shared the same problem analysis. And uh, then then we started our journey and looked for companies that we think have interesting new ways of thinking or or very old ways in some in some aspects, thinking of of thinking of uh, about corporate ownership. And that was the very first step to to really look at, at pioneers. And we found uh, people like Robert Bosch um, or people like Ernst Abel of the company Carl Zeiss, who already 130 years ago really challenged the basic concept of what a company is and what a corporate ownership form can be for a company. And so that was one aspect. I can talk about that a little bit, what they already came up with, what ideas. And the other one was that we, at the very beginning, had to ask the question, what is ownership even? And I do think that that's an important part to start the discussion, um, be it here or be it in any, any uh, process where we work with companies, um, to really be solid on what ownership means. And I, I, I'll, I'll just chip it in because that, that was interesting for me, that ownership, the, the levels of ownership, they repeat. It uh, doesn't matter if I talk about this, like this bottle here or a company or an apple tree in the garden, the levels are, are always the same. It's about who gets the fruits. In companies, we call that profits. Um, who has the power to decide what to do with uh, the company or the the apple tree, cut it down, leave it, prune it, whatever, Um, and who has the right to inherit it uh, or maybe destroy it. And the interesting thing, uh, as I said, I studied business psychology. I was not um, in the the early days educated in in ownership theory and and, uh, law, etc. And the interesting thing thing for me was that those various levels of ownership, they are normally thought of as a bundle of rights. You don't um, look at them and say, okay, how do we, do we answer the power question, the distribution question, and the inheritance question? But they normally, if you are an owner of a company, Kasia, they all belong to you. It's just one bundle. Mm-hmm. You're, like, you have 100%, mm-hmm. you have all those rights. 
But it's interesting that you can play around with those levels and you can, you can say, yeah, you should have all the, the power, for example, so the voting power, but you shouldn't have all the rights to get the fruits, the profit, right, profit rights. And even opening up the brain together to reevaluate how to combine those factors of ownership and then put them together in a way that is coherent with your perception of how a company should look like, even without like, naming what the right solution is, but having this, this conscious process of deciding on those three levels is a massive step forward in designing a coherent organization. I, can, I need to make a comment from my end because the example that you gave uh, at some point about like self-managed companies, uh, transparency, this is exactly what we've done uh, at Ragnarsson. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also faced this problem of, uh, okay, the ownership is kind of traditional in our case. And we felt that something was missing. Like mm -hmm. technically the people have power to do things, but at the very end of the day, they, rem they, they remember that, okay, but the owners are those guys. And if, if I do something, then um, they uh, bear the consequences of, of those decisions. And I, I can really feel that without like changing the underlying structure, mm -hmm. it's not like reaching its full potential. I'm a bit mm -hmm. um, as, as surprised what you said about reinventing organization, the, the book, uh, because uh, I, uh, I remember reading it and uh, I didn't find any information about the ownership itself, but I could have missed it, obviously. Um, it's, uh, uh, no, you, you probably have missed it because it's only at one page and one little paragraph. Um, it's a side note. It's a mention and within the uh, organization, uh, the, the Reinventing Organizations Wiki, you can find that online. They, they talk about steward ownership. But I actually talked to Frederick Ledoux afterwards and talked about his perception on steward ownership with him. And he, he pretty much agrees with, uh, with our analysis there about this, this change of the quality of what ownership means. Not just talking about like, okay, we take the same quality of ownership and just distribute that to a lot of people because that could have been the answer, right? Just take okay. the ownership and distribute it. But really challenging the conception and the quality of what ownership means, that is something that we are really much aligned on there. Good, good what did you do after your perception, the... by the way? Like when you think you noticed uh, that yourself? I mean, my first impression was that it's we kind of we can keep going like that at least for a yeah. while. Um, and the examples in the book where it's possible, like the structure is, is uh, the, the the regular structure is let's say good enough, and they were examples of big companies doing so. Mm -hmm. um, but when we realized, okay, it's it's really getting problematic. Um, we actually spoke with uh, we started speaking with your team uh, at some point and um, like evaluating different options. Uh, but for an existing company, it's always like a, a bit of a complicated process making this transition. Yeah. And I remember speaking about like two use cases when it makes the most sense. And uh, yeah, one thing led to another that it's maybe not the best time to, to do it. Uh, but at, yeah. at least we have this mindset, this um, like at least we think about about it, uh, how it could be solved in the long term. And uh, for now, it was it was simply sufficient. But this is definitely something we would like to dive a bit deeper into uh, in the future. Yeah, I um, I resonate with that. There are, especially for companies that have existed for a while, we again and again obviously notice that um, there can be some hurdles, like uh, already having given, haven't uh, changed the ownership structure in a way that makes it complicated, or having taken investors on board, or but it's it's there's normally there is a way. Sometimes it's a, it's very complicated, uh, sometimes less complicated. But I I do think the the mental process that you just described that happened with you. 
that's the first yep. step anyways. And that's a very valuable yep. one to challenge your own assumptions there and, and rebuild it in a way that feels good for you and coherent for you. And in case of like founders uh, who start from scratch, let's say I'm a founder, I want to uh, found my own company as of now, and I, I would like to flirt with the idea of having a, a steward-owned company. So basically... Uh, splitting the um, the the power, uh, the the voting rights from the economic uh, economic rights, uh, mm -hmm. the, the free aspects that you mentioned. Um, what sorts of trade-offs would I be making? Um, because mm -hmm. I think it's not so easy to to tell. Like I, I think the idea is great, but obviously it's not like it's it's a, this utopian solution that is always going to work. But there's always mm -hmm. some trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, there definitely are, and I'm going to answer that um, in a bit. Um, do we want to quickly jump back one step? Because I kept it a little bit in the vague so far, sure, what sure, steward sure. ownership is. Uh, we talked about yep. the different quality of ownership, and I talked about those pioneers, Robert Bosch, Karl, uh, Ernst Abel, Karl Zeiss. Um, yeah. But I, I just really want to make sure that we have the same basis because it happens regularly that we talk to people and they say, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I heard about this steward ownership thing. It's super nice. And we do that as well now. And then I ask, OK, what do you mean with that? And then I notice that there are some um, uh, what I would call misconceptions about what, what steward ownership mm -hmm. is. Got it. Can be. Um, so I just want to uh, I would like to point out steward ownership. What is it? it um, we looked at those companies and we wondered that. What, what are combining factors and principles that we keep see repeating with, within all those various alternative ownership forms? And we came across two principles. And those principles that we came across um, are, are nowadays coined as the two principles of steward ownership. One mm -hmm. is self-governance. So all those companies make sure that the majority of the voting power um, is with people that are closely connected to the company or in the company. And that's the self-governance uh, principle. The second one is um, the purpose asset lock, how we call it nowadays. The purpose asset lock principle makes sure that the majority of the profits get reinvested into the company um, or get donated. I, I, I want to repeat that because it's super important that people, people like kind of let that sink in a little bit to then start from there. Majority of the voting power stays with people in the company uh, and with people closely connected to the company. Second. The majority of the of the profits get reinvested or donated. So you could say, "Hey, I know how that works. We just do a kind of values workshop. Uh, we have some consultants coming in, and then we have those values, and we put those values on the wall um, in our entrance um, room, and then we live by those values." Um, which which could be a way, um, but steward ownership takes a little bit further because. They don't only put that on a wall somewhere, but they enshrine those two principles within the ownership structure of their, com of their company. So they actually change the corporate ownership in a way that makes those two principles binding and non-changeable. So it's a commitment mm -hmm. behind that. And before we come to, to your question, I think it's important because you could say, is that not a really boring idea? idea? What's so special about it? And I, I want to make that clear that that's what makes it special is that it asks, ultimately asks the question, who has power, why? Because if you coherently implement steward ownership in a legally binding way, then it has the following effect. People don't get power anymore by putting money on the table, which is a very strong uh, power, uh, power distributor so far. And they don't mm -hmm. get power over companies anymore by inheritance, because the, like the blood rule, 
doesn't work either. And instead of those two principles, a new principle arrives within the realm of, of the company, which is the people get the power who are the most able and value aligned. And you need to have a discussion around that, what that means for your given company. But the auto automism of, um, or the, the automatic mechanism of blood and power is, is challenged by this new, new assumption and this new leading question. I, and I do think that's a very powerful question. Um, and yeah, that, that, I stop here because that I think is the basis of what we nowadays call steward ownership. And there are various structures how to do that. You can do that with foundations, with with double foundations. Uh, you can use a, a ownership hack that we came up up with. Uh, you could argue that it should uh, there should be an official legal form that we fight for in Germany at the moment. Um, that's that's the structure how to do it. The principles and the mm -hmm. kind of idea behind this. That's that that's the constant. And now you want me to come to your question in terms of what's the downside, right? <laughs> but before yeah. we jump into that, I have actually another question, more more, more general. But uh, I have this feeling that uh, we talk right now about what's steward ownership, and you ask about founder has a company and he wants to jump into the model. Yep. But I have a feeling it's not about the founders, but it's about the people that are making the company. And the company, when it's evolving, it's evolving together with people that are within the company but they are changing also all mm -hmm. the time so it's not about the decision that one person made at the beginning of the um, of creating a startup or creating a foundation generally the institution but it's about having an agreement within a whole team a whole people that are in the company that they want to be on board with this idea and be a part of it mm. and it's like any other thing you cannot you know put that in front, hey, from now on, we're going to be steward owned and deal with it. And now, okay, now you're, you're value aligned, I think, or something, and you will make a decisions. Yeah. So how to actually make sure that people that, when you're making a decision, are on board, but also like in the future, I think it's, for me, it's super interesting mm. uh, before we jump into all the details, like yeah. pros, cons for investors, etc. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, how to make sure that the people now and in the future are the right people to be there mm -hmm. and carry on the torch, so to say? Yeah. Um, two thoughts about that. So first, you could do actually what you said. You could just implement it and then that's the case because that's your sole right as an owner and that will stay your sole right as the owner as you has the have your, the ultimate power. And But I think the question you're asking here is more of a how can a good process and a, like a culturally coherent way of, of, of implementing something like that look like? And then I would argue really discussing that with the core uh, people and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial people within your organization um, can create massive value because talking with them about who should have power, why, um, who do we want to have voting power over this company? Um, what do you think about having a structure where we make sure that the profits get reinvested into the course of our company, etc.? Having that discussion within a team where if you have the basics to do that within your team, it can create, I think, massive trust, uh, massive motivation. Um, and I like that, like thinking about what's the best way here is, is I think it's a bit too far because because it's very culturally specific uh, that, that can look really different from company to company. And the second one is who, who are the right people? If you would, for example, do that within your company, you could definitely say you implement sort of red lines uh, under which the the steward owners after you can be challenged um, 
and the power gets distributed to someone else, but only if those red lines get crossed. Um, for example, if, I don't know, if, if um, the profitability goes down and down and down for years, uh, and then in year five, you could say, if that really happens, then there is a, um, a group of people who can challenge the steward owners um, if they really act in a way that, that um, crosses those red lines. But that's very, like, red line, that's very culturally specific how to design that. And I can tell you that the, question, the answer to the question, who are the right people and how do we want to make sure that those uh, people pick the next right people, that looks very different from company to company, very different. Um, for example, we work with soap bottles. Um, they have a more decentral, self-organized way of thinking of entrepreneurship within their company. So it's a lot more decentral. But we, at the same time, work with Vashbear, for example, is a is a more traditional company. It has been there for for years and years, and there the ownership is more centralized and and lies with some people. So that's it's and that's not good and bad. It's just it's just the cultural specific answer to who are the best stewards for that social system. Mm-hmm. But do you uh, when you work with uh, companies who want to go through the transition or basically are founding themselves as a steward don't? Mm-hmm. Is this something that you try to um, codify at the beginning? Okay, these are the rules. If X happens, then we change. You replace this person for somebody else. Or it's more like we want to be purpose-driven. We have those two main principles on the top. And then the way, as we just, as we go, we, we make decisions if the team stays the same or not, like basically with any other company. Um, depends. If um, if I would now work with a company that already has a really decentral way of, of decision making and, and uh, distributing entrepreneurial work, then I would challenge them as a, as a good consultant. I would challenge them in terms of where how how culturally coherent do you want to make that at the moment. But it could be that you only change that and keep the same people within the power. Only the for example two entrepreneurs. Um, and then step by step, you let that evolve and that can evolve. What we always do is challenge the stewards what red lines and what governing bodies they want to uh, implement around them for them to make sure that they can be challenged or they can be consulted in a way that leads to good decision making. That's something we, we normally do, yes. Okay. Okay. So at least partially there is, there is a mechanism helping um, yeah. helping the, the core team, let's say, to navigate the waters and make sure that the, um, that the core team is, is, uh, is going into the direction the company is supposed to be going. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. Good um, time to get back to your question. Yeah, it's getting, <laughs> getting back. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a founder. I want to set up my own steward-owned company. I think this is a good idea, but obviously I've never done it, so I have a limited understanding of the trade-offs. Um, mm-hmm. I see some yeah. benefits and um, maybe there are also some downsides. Yeah. Could, could you could you give us an overview of the typical ones? Yeah. So first, first I would say only do this if this feels like a benefit for you. If this feels like something where you get freedom out of and motivation and a positive feeling, not a oh, I have a lot of downsides Downsides now, then this is not the right ownership form for you. And there are a lot of other ownership forms. Go out there and pick, pick one of those. Find your nice legal dress that works for your company. That would be my advice. Um, I'll say the downsides that keep repeating for us um, in the given world we live in at the moment. 
Uh, first one is an obvious one, I think, um, especially for this podcast. You talk to a lot of founders and to a lot of investors. You uh, are angel investors yourself. Um, a argument we get is, um, can I get enough money um, by doing this model? There is a misconception sometimes that steward ownership means that founders cannot be compensated for their risk um, and investors cannot be compensated for their risk in terms of investment and cannot get their money out again, which is a misconception. You can, as an investor, still um, invest in those companies, get money back. The only thing is that you get to answer the power question differently. And um, so I would argue that today a, a real downside is that there is a very strong narrative in the risk capital and venture capital field of how companies work. And there is this treadmill autobahn where companies get on everyone knows how it works you have your ready contracts people know how to talk to each other or are supposed to talk to each other how they should talk about how a company grows every pitch deck looks the same you have this hockey stick then you do the series a series b you do your exit you blah 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 blah, blah. there is sounds familiar. there's there is reason for that i don't want to like judge all of that but what i want to judge is we don't have a lot of diversity within the field of investment and startups anyways um we really have this again and again the same stories like um okay this is what you do this is how you raise blah blah, blah. so if you knock on those doors and say hey i'm a steward on company and uh, i want to rethink investment a little bit um, are you on board then in itself you have to break the narrative and even if you don't have, have to break the narrative because the investors actually really like that, you have to come up with something new. And that's always a little bit of an extra effort. Most of the time, in a time where founders are really challenged anyways, because they, they try to bring the, get their baby on, uh, up from the ground, make it fly, and get, uh, get, the, uh, get the resources to do that. Um, and within that time, you now have to confront yourself with what do you think uh, the right ownership structure is and talk to investors who maybe sometimes have never heard of steward ownership. And that's a challenge. So that's a downside. That's not a downside in the concept of steward ownership, but it's a downside in the, in the networks and the, the, or the structures that we observe today. Even some government funding sometimes can be challenging to get um, because they they are nowadays so much um, directed towards exit-driven startups, for example, which is crazy for me. It's just it, I think it's just not a fair competition of of different levels of or different models of what entrepreneurship and companies mean. We think it's that there's this one perception, and that's what we optimize for, and then all the others are disadvantaged. And I'm not arguing for hey, steward-owned companies are the better ones. I personally do believe that they have a beauty in it that I want to support, I want to found, I want to finance, I want to buy from, I want to work in. But on a, like on a societal level, uh, there's, there's a disadvantage because the systems are not, not there yet. But I want to say, I mean, we started six years ago and I've seen a massive development in that. I get more and more investors contacting us being like, we want to do that, we want to implement that in, in our structures. We have more and more startups. Uh, just yesterday, I was at, a, at, a, at an impact fest in the Netherlands, where in the Netherlands, where um, some investors on on stage got challenged by the startups. They said, "They said, hey, do you guys know about steward ownership? Do you invest in steward ownership?" And the, some of the investors said, "Do we know about what? What? What do you mean? What is that steward ownership?" <laughs> I think that's nice because we 
<laughs> yeah, accused, but I, I think it's <laughs> nice. But I, I give the question back. What do you, first? What do you think is the downside, and how do you, as an as an investor, look at steward ownership? I can I can actually give an example uh, from our end. So we've spoken with a few companies, and um, since we are angel investors uh, without uh, any LPs, there is a lot of flexibility on our side. Mm -hmm. And this model uh, sounds like something really kind of good to to go into. Like I think the gut feeling is this is this is the way we should be probably exploring more as opposed to the the hockey stick you mentioned. So we kept the conversation with with different founders about it and. Um, the the main problem that we had was um from a bit from the financial perspective so with unicorns you kind of have an unlimited uh upside so technically you could you can get a huge return just from one investment and this is what more or less returns your portfolio and with zero down companies and sometimes they're also combined with kind of zebra thinking so growing more sustainably as opposed to going crazy mm -hmm. and raising a lot of money, which is mm -hmm. also like a very appealing concept to us. Mm -hmm. But we felt like there, the depths and the upside is, is quite limited. And you mentioned like investors obviously can get returns, um, but also we heard like uh, models where the returns are capped at a certain level. So the upside was somewhat limited, uh, but the downside wasn't really, at least we didn't perceive it as, as more protected uh, uh, in relation to to the traditional startups, like obviously, obviously the data is uh, is missing here a bit. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we if we had known that okay, the distribution of zebra steward owned companies, the distribution of of returns is is more towards like the majority of the companies are actually actually making it, yeah. then it would be it would heavily influence um, yeah. our simulations and make it much more appealing. But if we kind of think about them the same way as we think about regular startups uh it looked from our simulations that putting money there is basically asking for uh, uh for problems yeah. uh and we didn't feel very good about it because we kind of feel we want to go into this direction but on the other hand we're not philanthropists we need to sti still be, be getting our returns so uh, mm -hmm. At least as of now, we we didn't know really how to continue. So we keep uh, the mm -hmm. conversations open, but we are very uh, straightforward with founders that we see those problems. And uh, uh, but we will we would love to kind of find a good solution here. Yeah, yeah there's uh, also another very practical um, issue. Let's say that because it's not that popular model, we see it an additional risk that even if we'll invest, for example not that many other investors would like to to participate or so it creates additional risk that in the future for example when the company will reach the next step it will be simply simply saying unable to to to, to raise extra money that will allow her to grow and reach the point that we want them uh, want the company to be so it's like you know never ending circle because there is not enough yeah. investors investing the, the others one don't want to join because this, they see the risk that no one else will join and it's like la di la di la uh, yeah. it's closed circle and that's an extra risk that needs to be set simply saying so unless there's like this critical mass of investors okay i'm open that's not a risk anymore um do, yeah. do you think it, it how much more time do you need uh, to to implement the purpose uh, concept uh, so widely that 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 will not become an, a risk anymore yeah um so first of all i think your your vicious circle description um fits and explains the reality and the problem at the same time because 
I do talk to a lot of investors who say, yep, we would be on board. But what about the others? Investors can't like that, which seems weird to me that everyone individually says, yeah, that's the right path to go on. But the others, they will not do that. So we cannot find follow on funding. That's the first argument I would say. I, as I talk to a lot of them, I have a lot of trust that um, it will work. Um, still have a lot of respect and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of love for the ones who do it at the moment because they, they take this leap of faith. Um, they just go mm -hmm. and they say, we do that. Because those founders, it's almost not optional for them in, in some ways. They say, this is the way I want to build my company. This is even the way I think about companies. I, ca I, I can't somehow do that in a different way. So I need to find investors to jump on board. And then they find those often, not, not always. And um, that's the first one. Uh, second one, I do think that if the companies are attractive enough, it will somehow solve itself. Like the market will hopefully solve that. If more and more impact-driven, talented, inspiring investors, uh, entrepreneurs ask their investors about steward ownership and the investors notice that they sometimes can't be part of the rounds anymore, then something will happen um and and i think that that's that's going to work in my that's that's why i if we ourselves invest um or go in as fin financing partners we i look at how like compelling those founders themselves can motivate others to jump on board and how coherent they themselves talk about why steward ownership why this way of uh, investment because if they if they can tell the narrative and have a coherent way to look at that, then it, it just attracts people. People want to be part of that and it changes the social processes a lot. Um, and coming back to um, to the cap point, I wanted to say, I think it's a, it's a, the, the thing is that the question is an unusual one that doesn't get asked, but the question is an interesting one at the same time. The question is, what is enough? Like, what is enough for the risk you take and how much risk do you actually take? And I don't mm -hmm. have the answer to that. I, I don't know if yep. a 5x multiple over 10 years or a 20x multiple over five years mm -hmm. is the right one. And I don't, wanna, I don't even want to answer that because I don't want to do either a moral judgment on that or, or pretend that I know the standard. But having that question in the room, I sense is something very important in, our, in the time we live in at the moment. And it creates something super nice between all the stakeholders of the company because suddenly you have a conversation about, hey, what is your risk? Your risk is losing the money. And that money is, is there to, 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 be, to produce more money. What is the risk for the founder who is not a second-time founder, who hasn't exited a company before, who doesn't have extra money to do that? Like this concept of what's the relevant, like the... the the risk that is what's implied, fair. not on a yeah, what's fair and not on a very objective level, but I think the the founder who hasn't, who is not a second time founder, who doesn't have a lot of money, who doesn't come from a rich family, and who starts a company and can, and can like spends ten years of of his or her time in the company, compared to the endless risk that an investor can take. Like, what's the so first? I don't th I don't think this eternal thing exists. I don't think the eternal downside is objective. And I think the conversation about what's fair is something that is well needed and is super awesome to, to experience. But it's unusual for investors to define what's enough and where, where, where's a good cap for the risk. And it can be very high. I really have to admit that. And on the downside of things, do you see that uh, those sorts of companies are, I don't know, doing better, the failure rate is lower? 
anything that um, that would make it a bit more compelling to investors? Yeah, I would love to uh, have um, already have big numbers that show that the survivability uh, probability of early stage to Series A startups uh, is better, and that's why you can calculate only fifty percent uh, fallout risk. Obviously, uh, we can mm-hmm. we can work for another ten years with Purpose Ventures, for example, and not have that numbers because it's not big enough to to do that. What we have mm-hmm. is um, we have very good reasons to uh, very good numbers and studies that show that the survivability probability the survival probability of companies in the long term is a lot higher for steward-owned companies we have especially have numbers from denmark that show that in the mid to long term those companies they simply live longer and if you now combine that with okay if we know that they live longer and with higher probability then you would be on board till that's the case, which is tricky for closed life cycle funds at the moment that have to close after eight to 10 years. And then we mm-hmm. come to the next level of, of like structural challenges that we have here that are happening anyways, I think, being the question, how, how good are the LP fund structures working with closed cycles if we at the same time talk about sustainability impact and long-term orientation. Is that short-termism not built into the, the fund structure and shouldn't we really challenge it on, on that level as well? Because you could say the fund structure is, is as it is, that's why it doesn't work. You could also argue there is this kind of company that is lacking a good infrastructure, so we have to challenge the, mm-hmm. uh, the fund structures as well, which is happening at the moment, I think. It's, I, I do think that's a big discussion um, in, in that field anyways. Yeah, we we don't really have this uh, cycle problem at least mm-hmm. for now, uh, because of the flexibility that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but if there was uh, any kind of uh, indication that uh, the downsides are lower, then it would be definitely much more appealing. Mm-hmm. And if if we are to, if we are to complicate things even more, uh, <laughs> when we were kind of plotting the the financial side of things. I, I could imagine that, okay, with this failure rate, we, the distribution of returns would be this and that, and it's good or not for, for us as investors. And then the next step would be even to plot the same on the impact side of things. Like maybe there is like a way to, I mean, impact yeah. measure, measuring, uh, impact, measuring impact in itself, it's obviously a challenge. Topic in but itself, like, yeah. We can do, if, we can, we can do another of, talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> if I were to, to build a new utopia, I would have at least to, those two plots and, uh, and mm. kind of see the trade-off of, of what, what the money buys and uh, where is the sweet spot for us. Yeah. But as of now, the, we, are not really be, we are not really able to, to make such things. Yeah, but I, I would argue for, for, the, for the upside, uh, just to react to that, I would argue that yep. from round to round, right, um, for one investment case, from round to round, you could just recal- uh, renegotiate the liquidity preference for a structured exit, plus you can renegotiate the overall multiple with the old investors and new investors. And I would argue that there is a certain amount of flexibility in there to just start and um, and that way always kind of adjust for, for the new investors coming in and adjust mm-hmm. that to the given situation that evolves over time for. And then obviously someone who, got, who goes in very early at a very high risk get a, gets a higher multiple with a higher return uh, um, payment, repayment preference than someone who comes in later. And then this conversation of like who is, who is in the preference and who, like what multiple is still fair at what point it changes, and obviously the money gets cheaper the the longer you live and the more um, sustainable you get. 
Um, but there are not enough proven models out there that that really make that feel easy and secure for investors at the moment. We create more and more mm -hmm. of those case studies to show that that how it works and what the kind of repeating knobs are. Because you could even then even buy and sell those uh, those contract-based kind of or certificate-based contracts that you do with those companies with the multiples in it, etc. You could even imagine mm -hmm. having some kind of secondary market where where you give uh, give the, give that to me and, and I give you some money for it because the kind of the multiple you can get you can't even trade that. So, but that that's all new. It's there's there's a long way still to learn that to to re reinvent on that. So I. I really appreciate you saying you're trying and and you're saying that there are still some challenges and I would agree with that. Yeah. Got it. I have just a quick question. I'm just curious. Is it even possible to implement a purpose model into a venture capital firm? Or it's like, you know, <laughs> just so much opposite that's no way. Yeah. Um, I worked with some funds to enable them or they wanted to enable themselves to use some of their investment money to be able to invest in steward-owned companies, um, which is possible. You can you just have to uh, work with the multiples. You have to work with a structured exit that again is in line with your life cycle. Then it depends on how how short the life cycle of your fund is, etc. It works. Um, then you have your legal um, challenges. So what what kind of legal structures can you, uh, financing structures can you use, et cetera. But it, it is possible. At the moment, I experience more like plugging that into some of the funds and then using, let's say, 10% for steward-owned investments, 10% of a very, of a, of a normal VC into steward-owned. And more and more um, funds emerge where they try to focus only on, on that. Um, and that's what we see at the moment. So I wouldn't say in the like hardcore normal VC, like your, your, what is that even, right? There are, there are differences anyways, but if you want to like collect money and use that money to make some more money and help companies on the way, you could definitely implement student ownership um, within that um, with its given limitations. You, you cannot do that if, if you want to tell your, your LPs that you control every company you have in your portfolio. And you, are, you sit on every table and you make all the decisions because that's not coherent with the steward ownership model. But we do have more and more investors who see the, like the, the relevance and the beauty even for the investment cases, right? That's because, let's take it one step further. Like it's not a downside only in terms of structure. You could argue that the driver that then gets set free is so much stronger because what you, what you put your money on is intrinsic motivation. You believe that some founders do that out of such a strong intrinsic motivation because they want to serve the cause of that company so so strongly that then in itself is such a social and individual energy that I would argue creates the lower risk. Um, so I, I do think that there are some upsides um, for investors to invest in certain companies. And if you're an impact investor, to be frank, and... You define an impact investor as being a sustainability-driven, long-term oriented investor who wants to create something better for the world. Then challenging that and combining that with steward ownership, for me, it's, it's almost like if you call yourself an impact investor, you got to at least think about steward ownership once and talk about where is the coherence between impact structures and impact just like the impact investment on the very first level. 
to be, be a bit like challenging here and say, yeah, I do think people need to challenge that thinking behind it, like the structural on a, on a basic level. Yeah, I think. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Kasia. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you, you you kind of you do. I I know that it's like a, a long process and there are like baby steps on it. So um, finding a way how to become an purpose aligned is probably right now uh, good enough. Yeah. Not even jumping directly into into being a purpose organization, but purpose aligned and find a way how you can work around that. Uh, it, it might be good enough for now. But I think what would help us, for example, as investor, and I can imagine also others, is to uh, get more access to data, as much as I said, or more use cases which uh, describe more specific mm -hmm. cases, specific startups, specific companies, yep. or as you said, upsides of getting involved in such a how how uh, the the exit would yeah, look exactly. like for instance uh, yeah. on the other hand also for founders it's like i think the the problem that we see talking to people is that they have no idea how to find investors that are willing to yeah. even take a look at stuart owned uh, companies so how to find those people is there any i don't know database or yeah. how many actually investors do you know maybe the number how many uh, invested in such companies in germany yeah. for example yeah, I'll uh, I'll try to find some some good numbers there. What I do know is that there is a growing network of from from like angel investors, family offices, funds, um, what have you, um, of a network of people who only want to invest in Stuart-owned companies. This network is growing by the month. We're getting more and more interest. Um, is it big enough that that everyone can can like trust that? No, it's obviously not because we are still in the pioneering phase. But the, I can assure you that this network is growing, um, and I can assure you on my to do list for the last two months has been sitting that we want to pu publish this website where the investors um, get shown and and people know that they are curious and interested and sometimes only focus on student owned companies. The reason it's not there is that I have been too busy, but it's gonna be there soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, can't wait yeah <laughs> this is one of the things we actually didn't cover at all uh, ahim how how do what do you actually do so apart from preaching the the model and <laughs> this kind of uh <laughs> philosophy how do you what's your role in the ecosystem how people yeah. uh what what people can expect from you yeah first of all i hope that i'm not preaching but trying to advocate for that and i really want to point out we do not know a lot of stuff in this field we are learning we want to co-learn with other people there's a lot of stuff that we need to find out but we do have collected some experience over the last six years what is our role um i point that out for purpose first and then kind of put myself into that purpose mainly does three things um we wondered um, why do they? Do, why are there not more steward-owned companies in the world? And we came across three reasons. First, the knowledge is missing. Second, there are no easy solutions to implement steward ownership. Uh, Robert Bosch, for example, took uh, 20 law uh, 40 lawyers for 20 years to come up with their structure. You cannot <laughs> tell that to your startups, right? Um, so really. it, needs, it needs. But they didn't have internet. Come on. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, so it's a lot easier today. We can. Uh, we found legal hacks, and we. Uh, so it needs easy solutions. It's it's a lack of easy solutions. And the third one is, this this access to capital is still too limited. So we, as purpose, made it our our mission to help improve those three levels: knowledge, easy solutions, access to capital, and move capital towards steward-owned um, structures. Um, we do that internationally with um, 30 um, very nice and motivated people around the world, mainly in Europe, Germany, 
um, Latin America and the US. Um, and the the one part, the knowledge part is just nonprofit work, right? We, out of charitable uh, and donated money, we create open source material, we write books, we work together with universities. Um, the second part is we, we consult companies on their way to transform to steward ownership and create kind of legal hacks to make it easier. Um, and the third one is that we have two uh, investment uh, vehicles ourselves, out of which we invest in steward on companies. The one is Purpose Evergreen Capital. Um, they focus on already profitable companies, normally um, at a later stage um, that need uh, succession money or growth money or whatever. And then Purpose Ventures, uh, and we, fo we focus on startups. Um, I, at the moment, um, focus mainly on the Purpose Ventures uh, startup work and the uh, nonprofit work where we open source everything out of what we do in Purpose Ventures and what we learn in the consulting work. And uh, you can find workbooks with uh, workshops and lead questions. It's all there. It's all open source. Um, and <laughs> on the side, there is our there, there is the sister organization, uh, which is called Stiftung Verantwortungseigentum, and they are pushing for like actual legal changes within the German uh, system to have an official legal form. So a lot of the work that we do at the moment is not needed anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And cross your fingers and do everything you can. Um, that this is going to happen soon because we need some changes on that level or we hope for some changes there as well to make it easier. Yeah, that's... Um, that's maybe one uh, question. What on the Purpose Venture, uh, what, 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 uh, what it does exactly? Um, purpose Ventures, we invest in or help finance um, companies from early stage to Series A. Um, we still figure out in what kind of... Uh, um, what percentage, I would say, how much early stage do we want to do, how much Series A. Um, and out of that same vehicle, Purpose Ventures, we do the consulting and transformation work where we support oh, okay. companies. Okay, so to, it's both. Um, yeah. yeah it's got both. it, got it. So everything um, that uh, uh, our audience would like to know is, is covered by you. Uh, you provide the knowledge you <laughs> help with raising money and uh, creating the legal structure Everything in one package sounds 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 very good. We're trying. Um, I, I I yeah. As I said, I think there's there there is stuff there where we have to collaborate and learn um, learn more. And um, yeah, same kind of. Again, the feedback is it needs people to to kind of rethink those structures. So I'm happy that you guys think about that as well. We're trying to <laughs> doing <laughs> our best. Doing our best. Yeah. So much. You think you you broaden your understanding of uh, steward owned companies yep uh i still don't know what to i'm still not sure what we should be doing at regnerson to to move forward uh i mean obviously diving a bit deeper into what it's possible and how we could model um the problems that we have uh but i think it's uh, like for the for our audience um it gives a not good overview of where to start and how to how to approach this topic and i really liked uh like the my main um takeaway from the color i mean obviously apart from all the details about purpose-driven companies is what you said at the beginning that um, this approach needs to fit well with the founder so if if yeah. somebody prefers other ways of doing things it's also fine like not everyone is uh, let's say in the situation to to go into this direction and it's it's uh it's interesting like i i'm, I'm i tend to have this uh opinions that okay we go into this direction like full force and not necessarily like uh exploring different ways but um yeah that was pretty cool yeah yeah 
Cool. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ahim. It was uh, a pleasure having you here today. Um, Thank you for inviting yeah. me. Yeah. If there's any uh, follow-up, if <laughs> anyone needs more information, find our website, send me an email, whatever. We'll definitely <laughs> put all the links uh, below the video uh, yeah. and uh, the stream. So thank you so much, Ahim, again. And uh, thank you so much, guys, for listening and stay tuned for the next episodes. Thank you.